Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Jeffrey Eugenides, whose latest book is a collection of short stories, Fresh Complaint. There are three novels, The Virgin Suicides, Middle Sex, which won the Pulitzer Prize, and more recently, The Marriage Plot. And we'll talk a little about The Marriage Plot, but mostly we'll focus in on Fresh Complaint, this collection of short stories. These are collected over your entire writing career. Are there a number of uncollected stories, or is this pretty much it? That's pretty much it for what I've published in my lifetime. There's lots of stories I didn't finish or didn't deem worthy of publishing, and that would make a much larger book. But these are the the things I think were the best that I have. In choosing these stories, they go back to one of your earlier stories, Baster, and it looked to me like there were two stories that may never have been published before. Is that correct? Yes. About a third of the book is new material. I didn't want it only to be golden oldies. So the first story in the collection, Complainers, and then the last story, Fresh Complaint, they're rather long. One is about 50 pages, one is 30 They've never been published before, and I just wrote them last year. And when you wrote them, did you intend them to be short stories? Did yeah. You, you knew what you were doing for this. No, I did. I knew I was writing a collection and was putting it together. You know, I wanted something new, and I wanted to try to write longer stories that had more of the density of a novel. Um, and that's what I was trying to do with those longer stories. Well, before we get into specifically the stories, how do you feel about writing short stories versus the three novels you've written? Short stories are extremely difficult. It's a devilishly maddening form. It's funny because it's the first thing you try to write as a writer, and it's what what you try to do in creative writing class because it's manageable and it's short. But the talents and the abilities that it calls upon are extreme. So you have to, you know, learn how to write and get everything done in a very short space. I find novels much more forgiving. I feel my natural inclination is for a longer form, but I've always wanted to keep at the short story. And you'll find that the things that you learn in writing short fiction will then translate into novels in terms of shaping a narrative of a, of a, of a chapter or a section. Some, some of the stuff is uh, very translatable. It's funny you say that it's so hard, but marriage plot went through a lot of iterations and Middlesex turned and changed yeah. as well. Well, they're hard, too. <laughs> Novels are hard, too. Uh, Larry McMurtry came when I was at, at Stanford. He came into our class one day, and he said that he thought novels were easier to write than short stories, which seemed kind of blasphemous or strange to, strange comment to me. But it opened a little window in my brain, and I thought, maybe I should try novels. None of it's easy, but, but they're more forgiving. You have space to work, and, and you can figure things out. Well, I guess in a novel... You have to cut, but you don't have to cut everything. Right. But in both, I mean, are the words, individual words, more important in a short story? Not really. No, not the kind of books I write. It's the writing process and the lyrical quality or the sentence-to-sentence attention to detail that you need is the same. 
I mean, you've got the three novels, so each of them, they grow, and then you kind of get a bigger idea, and you know where you're going. Marriage Plot, you started with an idea and then decided to follow one character and sort of go from scratch, right? Right. I was writing Middlesex, and I was having trouble with Middlesex, and so I abandoned it for a while, and I, I tried to write what I thought would be a short, tasty novel about a coming-out party, a debutante party in Gross Point, Michigan, where I grew up. And as I started working on that, ran into problems with it. It seemed very kind of insular, and uh, I didn't like it, so I put it aside, finished Middlesex, many years pass, and then I went back to this idea. And what I found when I returned to the manuscript was that the material that interested me, that seemed to have the most energy, related to this one character, Madeline Hanna who was a, a, a young woman at college studying semiotics. So I followed her, and I followed her into another book and then told the story from three points of view, and it became a novel much different than I expected. That's how I usually work. I get one idea, then I get another idea, and then I get another idea, and they all attach, and then you suddenly have a number of perspectives focused on an event, and, and then you, you're, you're dealing with novels. You're not dealing with short stories anymore. When you're doing research, uh, at what point in that do you begin to say, well, I better know what I'm talking about? It depends on, on the topic. With Middlesex, I had to do research to be able to write the, the first page. I had to learn about genetics. I had to learn about intersex conditions. I had to learn about Greco-Turkish history and the rise of the, uh, the automobile uh, industry in Detroit. So each page of that novel went hand-in-hand with with research. With The Marriage Plot, I was recalling and relying on my memory of being at college in the 80s. And um, aside from a little bit of research into bipolar disorder, or as they called it then, manic depression, I didn't need to do a lot of research for that novel. You still wanted to get certain things accurate, I mean, you know, even in terms of the history of Brown. That's why I did set it at the time I I went to college. I remember what music was popular and what the state of technology was. People write letters in the marriage plot. And, you know, that seems like an antique enterprise now, but I remember it. The marriage plot does have some connection to Fresh Complaint because of the story Airmail. Now, Airmail was published 1997 or something, and marriage plot is 15 years later, 14 years later. That was written way before Emra was published, and the name of the character in it was called Mitchell Carambolis. When I was writing The Marriage Plot, there's a character named Mitchell Grammaticus, and he goes to India, and he's quite similar to the character in Airmail. I'd sort of forgotten that the character in Airmail was named Mitchell. His first name was Mitchell. And when I went back to collect the stories, I saw, wow, I named this character Mitchell, too. He's the same guy. He's a young college kid undergoing a religious conversion. And I just thought, I'll tidy that up. I'll, I'll make him be Mitchell Grammaticus and throw away the, the Carambolis. And that was really just about the only change I made in the stories before publishing them in this collection. So it sort of fits in with Marriage Plot now. It fits in. And he's becoming something of an alter ego in other of, of my work. So I thought, let's tidy him up and then I can use him in, in other places. His background going to India as he did, you did the same thing. I did, yeah. I took a year off from college and went around the world, first through Europe and ended up in Asia and spent a lot of time in India and a brief time 
volunteering for Mother Teresa. It's it's not a long part of my life, but it it seems dramatic, and people always ask me about it. And I did try to write about it for for many years, and only succeeded in doing so successfully in in the marriage plot. It was the only place where that that part of my life made fictive sense. Mitchell is under some pressure from his parents who want him to come home immediately, and he's sort of lying to them with letters and phone calls. Was that your experience too? Well, in the, the story Airmail, Mitchell is in Thailand, and he's come down with amoebic dysentery, and he's also becoming religious, and he thinks that he can heal himself through spiritual means. He's fasting, and he's he doesn't want to take medicine. Sort of a Mary Baker Eddy religious kick that he's on. That's quite close to, I mean, not that it matters, but yes, I went through a similar experience. In those days when you traveled, you broke off relations with your parents. You didn't call home very, very rarely. There was no Facebook. They couldn't see where you were, so you were lost to them, and you could become who you wanted to be in, in, in the time you were away. Now people... You know, they're, they're being surveilled, in a sense, by their friends and their parents, and so there's less freedom in, in travel than there used to be, it, se- it seems to me. In those days, you would go off, and you could reinvent yourself, and that's what that's what he's doing, and that's what, for, for a while, I did myself. Also, there were islands like the island yeah. in there, and, you know, you go to those islands, which were like that in the 80s, like Cosmet, and they're not like that anymore. That's what I've heard, and that's why I don't go back, because <laughs> I want to keep it in my, my memory. There's probably some other places you could go to get that experience. There's another story that connects up with Middlesex, and that's... The Iraqid Volvo. What's the relationship? Now, the character Luce is in Middlesex? That's right. The Iraqid Volvo is the only story in the collection that I wouldn't call a proper short story. It's an outtake from a different draft of Middlesex, an earlier draft of Middlesex, when I was writing Middlesex from multiple points of view. One of the points of view was the sexologist Peter Luce. He is a figure in, in Middlesex. He's the doctor that Calliope goes to see. He plays a, a fairly big role in the novel, but in the previous draft, he, he was his own character. And that section is about him going to Papua New Guinea and studying a tribe that has a third gender category. I was on German TV yesterday because they've now ratified a third gender category in mm-hmm. Germany. You know, much of my writing has been about that, and the Iraqid Volva feeds right into that idea of, of, you know, a third gender category that's established in a culture. There's a lot of research in that particular story. Yeah, I read a lot of anthropology for that. <laughs> Is that tribe, does that tribe exist at all? It does exist, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. I rarely, I rarely make anything up. I find out the facts of the world and then exaggerate them or do funny things to them. But I, I, I don't usually, I don't like to break the rules either of f- physical laws or historical facts. How did you find out about that particular tribe? Uh, I read an, a book about them. There was this art colony once, and one of the writers who had been there had lived among the tribe. I changed the name of the tribe, but he had lived there and sort of gone native for about 10 or 15 years. And I learned quite a bit of it through through that. Also, in studying the intersex condition that I use, 5-alpha reductase deficiency syndrome, one of the places where it occurs in the world is in um, Papua New Guinea. So both the anthropology I was reading and the genetics and biology I was reading led to that jungle and to those tribes. 
And then you throw in the professor's kind of fish out of water. Right, right, yeah. It's a comic story, and he's based on certain sexologists of the 70s, whom I also did research in. And they were, they were kind of flamboyant, slightly Hugh Hefner-ish characters, bringing new ideas about sex and a certain whiff of sexual revolution and emancipation. To them, they were also questionable characters in many ways. And that's, that's who Peter Luce is. The oldest story is Baster which actually became a movie, which I'll ask you about. But uh, the, the oldest one is Capricious Gardens. Oh, really? Yeah, 1989, my first publication. Oh, really? Life. Yeah. That's very early on then. That is. I wrote that when I lived in San Francisco, and I went to graduate school at Stanford, and it was my first publication. How yeah. does it feel going back and rereading it? There's a feeling when you look at the early stories that might be akin to reading your diary or your or your journal. Not that I keep a diary or a journal, but... But you, you remember who the person you were and what you were doing, what you were reading and thinking. And I can see the writers under whose influence I was laboring at that time. It wasn't a, a horrible experience. The story is kind of a farce told from four points of view, a romantic farce. I was happy to re-encounter it. I hadn't looked at it in, in years. It seemed reading it, it, it felt different in that... Now that you tell me this, yeah. uh, it probably says it right there, and mm. I didn't see the date at the end. But it reads almost like a play because you could have two sets, the garden and the house, mm-hmm. and everything happens within those two sets. That's true, yeah. Well, it's always true, but when you're starting out, you sometimes want to limit your possibilities because it's just easier to deal with it. So setting a, a story just in a house but having four points of view, that makes it complex, but you don't have to worry about jumping around in time too much, going to different places. It's a little bit like a play. Also, as I said, it's a farce, so there's a lot of entrances and exits and misunderstandings and comedy and tragedy kind of intertwining. Which is sort of like a play. Right, exactly. And of course, since this was so long ago, you probably have no recollection of how you began it or why you began it. Oh, no, I remember it perfectly. Oh, what happened? Well, it was based on an anecdote. My girlfriend at the time had told me about being in Ireland and being with a friend and being invited to a a, a lovely old decaying French, I mean not French, Irish uh, house in the country. And that was just enough for me to imagine what, what happened. The rest is, is, is totally invented. But the idea of these young women and this older men, one of them grieving for a divorce, and what happened on that night in in that house. I was reading the review in the New York Times of the book, and it made an interesting comment about recurrent themes in the works of Jeffrey Eugenides. And as we talked here and finding out, for instance, certain things about these other stories, it seems that connections could be made by a reader that wouldn't necessarily have been made by Jeffrey Eugenides in terms of themes, ideas, like the the older man going through trauma. Well, at the time you wrote that story, you Mm -hmm. weren't an older man going through the problems of an older man. No, I wasn't, but I became a fiction writer to go through the traumas of other people besides (laughs) myself. My own trauma is enough. You know, I want to deal with it always. As I said, I, I stand in position of that story at a distance. It's just a story I heard from a girlfriend at the time, and I, I imagined it. It's about believing in things um, and being mistaken in your belief and investing objects and moments with great significance. I did have some familiarity with that in terms of the religious stages or manias that had beset me when I was young. 
trying to figure out what's true and maybe believing in things that might not be. I was wondering about that experience and that aspect of life and the confusions around it. So I'm connected in, in that way, I think. We have a story in there called Find the Bad Guy, which is a first-person account by someone who is kind of an abuser. And it's the only story in here that's really got an unreliable narrator. You have to pick out the details. What's the origin of that story? That story came to me in three or four different moments. I began writing a story about a man who has been kicked out of his house, and he has a restraining order against him. He is an unfaithful husband and a drinker, and uh, he has a lot of problems. And I was writing it, and then one day I, I decided to turn it into a, a, a Texas twang to have his voice be highly inflected with a Texas accent, which changed the language and made it funny and just did something to the story. And then as I wrote a little while longer, I realized, no, you know, he's actually not a Texan. He's he's from Michigan, and he's just lived in, in Texas and worked for country radio station. He's kind of putting this on. And then I realized I was dealing with a kind of fraud, a, a person both touching but very fraudulent who's regretful for the mistakes he's made in his in his marriage. And the story recounts that and going to um, marriage counseling and his you know, separation from his family. So that's usually what I do when I, when I work. I get an idea and I do something to it and I do something else to it until I'm dealing with something quite different. So that's, that's how that story generated itself. It turns out he is fairly unreliable in that we see how others, particularly his wife, mm -hmm. how they respond to him. And then you realize, well, wait a second. He's really trying to smooth over a lot of issues. I mean, he's honest in, this, in a certain sense because he knows he's a drunk, but he's also kind of minimalizing his own behavior. I didn't see him as an unreliable narrator. That doesn't mean he, he isn't, but he is trying to come to terms with his life. He is trying to fess up and look at square in the eyes. I thought to the best of his ability, he's telling us his story. I don't, I don't know that I'm any more reliable in relating the stories of, of my own life. We all have our, our blinders on. He's at a moment of reckoning, and he's certainly very different as he tells the story and as he ends up in the story than in his marriage and the, the events he talks about in the past. There's another story, Great Experiment, which is very different in that it's the ones, well, maybe the other stories have it too, but that story in particular, it sort of has a beginning, middle, and end like a novel might, only it's compressed. You know, it's kind mm -hmm. of a crime story. It is a crime story, yeah. It's my Breaking Bad story before Breaking Bad. It's a story about a, a poet who takes to a, a life of crime. I was living in Chicago when I wrote the story, and it was... 2005. Eight. And it was published in eight. But it was the boom. It was before the crash. Everyone was getting rich. I couldn't figure out how they were getting rich. Everyone was driving Range Rovers. I would meet doltish husbands at dinner parties who were making huge amounts of money with real estate investment corporations and things. And I saw that something was happening in the economy that to me was inexplicable. And I began to wonder how people felt and how I felt about being sort of out of it and left behind. You know, you've you followed a life of literature. In this case, he's a, he's a poet, and he's got very little to show from it in, in the midst of a society where 
a lot of imbeciles are getting rich. So the, this bothers him, and little by little he gets convinced to, to embezzle. Haven't you? I've always wondered, what is my capacity to to become a, a criminal? You know, how would how would I do it? How would you do it? Something I, I like to daydream about. So I got to do it in the story. <laughs> and his boss is kind of a Hugh Hefner-ish character. Right, or, or a Larry Flint sort of. He's a, he's a crusader for free speech, and he's, he's quite a filthy individual in many ways. It's the only story with kind of a political tinge to it because there's little bits of de Tocqueville in there as well. Quite a bit, yeah. How did that come into the story? Well, I was reading de Tocqueville and trying to compare the condition of the United States, as he observed it and described it to 2005 in the United States now. And I was struck by the phrase he uses, the quality of condition of the Americans that he saw. Obviously, he's not talking about enslaved people in 1832, but he was talking about basic citizens of the United States. Most people had about the same amount of money, and the democracy was supposed to operate effectively because of that. And even though our system of government presumed that wealth would be shared fairly equally. That seemed incredibly different in 2005. It seems even more more different in, in 2017. So it's a story about where has America come? What were the ideals of America to the extent that we, that we had a purity of intent when the country began? How far have we strayed from that? And that's something that the character is thinking about. He's publishing a book about de Tocqueville. And all of the passages from de Tocqueville and the thoughts about de Tocqueville at a counterpoint to the story of, of purity and, and beauty and idealism that is very much uh, counterposed to the criminality that happens in the story. It struck me in reading it that if the story had been, say, a new story rather than one from nine yeah. years ago, it would have felt like a parable of today. Well, it still can. The two stories that sit at either end of Fresh Complaint, Yeah. First of all, why choose the complaint complainers? What was that about, the titles? It was a little bit just happenstance. I, I didn't think about them calling to each other from the beginning to the end of the book when I, when I wrote them. Complainers was the right title for uh, the first story. It's about two elderly women and their friendship they've maintained over their lives, partly through their mutual love for a book. Does that book actually That exist? book exists, yeah. It's oh, called, really? It's called Two Old Women by Velma Wallace, who's an Alaskan writer. She's an Inuit, and she grew up hearing this legend, and she wrote a book about the legend. The book is quite popular. It was my mother's, one of my mother's favorite books. In the book, these two women are cast out from their tribe because they're old and frail, but also because they complain a lot. And the, the two women in the book re relate to them. So there's this idea of complaining as part of a friendship. That, that turns into uh, a sort of heroism in the first story. And then fresh complaint in the last story is a legal term. It's actually quite pertinent now. Fresh complaint is the kind of witness you need if there's been a sexual assault and uh, you haven't reported the crime for many years. So let's bring up old Harvey Weinstein, for instance. If he attacked you in, in London in, in 1995 and you want to try to prove it, what you need is a fresh complaint witness, which might be your mother or your friend, and you told about what happened right at the time. James Comey's memos, which he wrote right after talking to President Trump in the, in the Oval Office, are also fresh complaint 
evidence. He, he wrote them on that day and said what happened. It, it bolsters your case. That The last story deals with an incident of sexual impropriety and fresh complaint is one of the legal aspects of the story that comes up. But it's also the idea of complaint in terms of a malady, a condition that haunts you, that enfeebles you, and the idea of a pain that you're suffering. So I like titles to have multiple meanings and fresh complaint satisfy those conditions. That story also drifts around in time, going backwards and forwards. And it's only toward the end that the pieces get put together. As you were working on it, did you have the sense of the ordering as it was going along? No, I didn't. I, I got the story from a friend of mine who's a town prosecutor who told me about a case. So I had this idea of a, an incident. He didn't really know much about it, but I, so I had to invent what happened. I just knew the outline. I didn't know how I would tell the story. I knew it was going to be from both points of view. But as I, as I mentioned earlier with that story, I was trying to give a short story a density of a novel where uh, there's a lot of time encompassed in the story and a, a lot of events, and you just tell the bare minimum of what you need to to describe and adequately manifest the two different lives that the story entails. There's a young Indian-American girl, a teenager, and then there's a an, an older British physicist. He's lived a, a long life, and I didn't want to go into all of it. I could have turned that story into a novel, but I, I wanted to keep it as a, as a short piece. Was that the final story you wrote? Yes, it was, yeah. Then in some sense, as I think about these, yeah. your first story could have been a play, and this one could have been a screenplay. It's got the cinematic form to it. Yeah, maybe, yeah. I I don't, you know, I just write fiction, so if it turns (laughs) into something else, it's fine with me, but I don't think about it that way. Jeffrey Eugenides, speaking of things turning into something else, Basters became, I guess, the first part of the switch. It did, yeah. How did that happen? How did that come about? Baster is about an unattractive man who had a short affair with a beautiful woman. And many years later, she decides she wants to get pregnant, but she hasn't found Mr. Right, so she thinks she will get pregnant on her own. And she goes into the market for for some semen, who, who is going to be the father of her child. And obviously, he, he wishes that he would be chosen, but he's not chosen. So that's, that's the scenario of, of the story. And it was bought for the movies. They wrote a screenplay of it, and they just expanded it. So my story based her comprises maybe the first third of, of the movie, The Switch. They changed some fundamental details. My hero, if you can call him that, is an unattractive guy. And it's important in the story that he's not physically attractive because it's about the Darwinian struggle, whether you need brains or, or looks, sort of. And they decided when they were casting it, they were going to cast Jason Bateman, who's nice looking. And I told them, well, you know, he's great, but, he, you know... I, you need someone funny looking really to do the to do the part and they said well we're going to make him kind of nerdy or neurotic and i said how's he going to be neurotic and they said well we're going to make him wear sweater vests and things you know which i in fact wear a lot of myself so it changed a bit and then of course they put on you know another hour of drama so in a sense it's not an adaptation of the story the story is is the launching pad you know the first 30 minutes well, at the same time, this is not a short story you would have considered turning into a novel, or would you? No, not at all. No, not <laughs> at all. None, I mean, Fresh Complaint could have been a, a novel, though I didn't know if I had the wherewithal to to write the full stories of, of those characters. That's why I kept it short. 
but most of them know. I, th I, I wrote them in short stories because they're short story ideas. When you're looking at a short story, on some level you know the themes you're writing about, but is that always true in a novel? Doesn't, doesn't some stuff come up afterward you know, when you're reading and, or someone's telling you, hey, this is what your book is about, and you're going, oh, yeah? Oh, yeah, that's, oh, that's only what happens. I never think about themes. I think about characters, and I think about situations they're in, and I think about whether it intrigues me and whether I think I can pull it off. I never think about, quote-unquote, the, the meaning or the theme, and I'm always sometimes surprised after you publish a book, you wait to see what people say it is about, and, and then they tell you. And then sometimes you end up speaking about it as though it was either intentional or not. You know, This book, sometimes people have said it's about all these depressed older white men and you know uh, that could be that could be true i am a you know middle-aged white man but i'd never thought of them as as depressed or pitiful particularly i just thought of them as sort of touching and troubled and and flawed well what i noticed in the times review is it talked about the character from airmail that comes right out of marriage plot and then when i looked at the dates i said that can't be because the short story is so many years before the novel. Oh, did they have that wrong? Yeah, because... Oh, that's why I don't know. read my reviews. See. It would just annoy me if I, if I saw I was that. reading this, and I'm going, wait a second, this doesn't really wow. compute. But wow, I also understand that when a book comes out like Fresh Complaint, even though you're seeing it as a collected series of short stories, on yeah. some level, the reviewer or the critic is yeah. trying to find overarching themes, right. ideas, right. as if... These aren't separate, perhaps unrelated right. elements. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm not saying that anyone is wrong, any reader or critic is wrong to find themes in my work. It's just not the motivation for me. It's not how I think about it. And I think that by virtue of having written these stories, and by virtue of their being, being my stories, I'm sure there are, there are thematic connections and even a kind of through line as you watch the young man in airmail get older. It is about being a man and, and getting older and dealing with troubles in college and dealing with troubles with marriage and children and things like that. So there is a kind of progression in the story, even though I didn't set out to do that. The order of the stories is not the order of which they were published no, or no, written. No, no. They're scattered around a bit. Was there any rhyme or reason to that? It seemed like the most serviceable uh, order. I wanted the reader to read Complainers first. It's just written. It's fresh material. It's what I'm doing now. I wanted to start with that and then uh, and then we went with airmail. I just tried to figure an order, like if you were putting together an album of songs that that would make that make sense, and one would flow into the next. Jeffrey Eugenides, over the the period of all these years, you've only written three novels. I mean, you've worked very hard on mm -hmm. them. Is it the novel form that slows you down in that way, or are you just a slower writer? How does that work? I, I think you can't not say that I'm a fast writer based on the facts. I'm going to speed up the rest of my life so that I never get asked this question again, though. You've been asked it before? You always get one thing attached to you, you know, your thing that they ask. That The thing that they ask me always is, why do you take so long? I mean, I do take long. I throw out a lot of material. I abandon books, and um, I don't publish something just because I think it's time to publish something. And I have a lot of doubt that I work with and anxiety about my work, so I think that hinders me. Maybe it helps me in certain ways, but I, it, my, my process is the, the way it is. I publish something when I think something's ready to be published. 
See, this one came out not so much after. And then if I think if I write a couple quick quickly, I'll, I won't be asked it. It's my own fault, though. Don't feel bad about well, it. Well, on the other hand, you know, you look at someone like Pynchon who took forever. Yeah. And went slowly, and the books were masterpieces, and then he sped up, and they were not. You know, or Stephen yes. King, who writes a book a year, and probably some of them are very good, but there are too many to read. It's the same um, theory of um, of evolution. Like, there's two different ways to pass on your genes. You can have few offspring and and rear them and care like like humans do, or you can be like a fish and have you know, millions of eggs, and some of them survive, some of them die. So there's, there's two, two ways to go about it. So far, I've been, I've been very mammalian in my, in my literary output. Yeah, but then again, the three novels are considered very good novels. I do want to write more quickly. It's one of the things I'm really thinking about because I'm getting older, and there's not as much time left. I hear time's winged chariot all the, all the time. So I'm trying to get over some of my... Um, I lose a lot of time... To, to anxiety and, and, and doubting myself, which I don't think is useful. I'm trying to get over that. I want to work just as hard and have them be just as good, but I don't need all of that. Have you ever thought about writing plays or... No, I don't want to. That's, it's logistically a, a nightmare to me, having people come on and dealing with the sets. and No, no. Fiction, you can fly where you want. I'd rather do that. So there's no there's no uh, screenplays. You're not planning to be a showrunner. Well, I wrote a screenplay for the Marriage Plot, adapting the novel. So I, I have some experience writing writing screenplays. I can imagine doing that, but with film, you can you know move around pretty easily. Well, what happened to the screenplay? It exists. I don't think right now it's being made. I, I wrote it with Greg Matola for Scott Rudin, and uh, we wrote it many times, and it's not being made at the moment. So that's all I know. What about Middlesex? Anything on that? There's a lot of discussions about trying to make a miniseries out of it, but we'll, we'll have to see what happens with that. If it gets made, you might get virgin suicides. You might get the switch. That's right. That's <laughs> right. You try, you know, you try to get someone who has a vision of the book and wants to make a good cinematic work of art based on the book. You, you, it's going to change a lot. You can't replicate it on the screen, but you want someone that has a real sense of what the book is trying to do, and maybe they can make a correlative that's visual. Have you thought about writing nonfiction? Uh, a, a little bit. I'm working on a novel now that is autobiographical, so it comes closer to the territory of memoir than anything that I've written before, but I don't usually like to tie myself down to, to the facts. So I, I, I don't think I will. I think the closest I'll come to nonfiction is, is that sort of autobiographical fiction. I would like to write a book about my father, and I guess that would be nonfiction. So I probably will someday. How close are you on the novel? Early stages is not going to be a long novel, so I'm in the, I'm in the early stages of it. So not for a couple of years? No, I, I think so. A couple of years is what I'm shooting for. Not nine, though. As I said, I have a new vow. And how about more short stories? I, I really enjoyed writing these stories, and I have a number that I'm working on at the moment. The question is just time. I want to write, work on the novel when I wake up, or do I want to work on the, on the story? So little by little, I accrue the stories while I'm writing novels. I think the next collection will, will be produced in the same way this one was, sort of haphazardly but steadily at the same time. You mentioned at the very beginning of the interview a lot of dead ends, stories that didn't go anywhere, novels yeah. didn't go anywhere. Right. How many are there, and how 
big are they? Or? They're usually about 150 pages. That seems to be where I despair. I wrote three novels like that before I wrote The Virgin Suicides. So even though The Virgin Suicides was my first novel, it was sort of like my fourth. And I have a, a number of things like that. Sometimes they come back. The ideas come back or I figure out how to, how to rework them. So they're not always uh, for naught. But it's usually like that, 100 pages or so. Is there any possibility some might reemerge as short stories then? They might. Some of them are a long time ago now, and I, oh. I, I wouldn't so want to go back. Yeah. I, I remember one that I was writing when I lived in San Francisco. All I remember about it is that it was probably a lot like Tropic of Cancer or something like that. <laughs> I was reading a lot of Henry Miller that I bought used at the bookstore near my apartment, and I think I sort of got infected with a little Henry Miller moment, and I wrote about 120 pages of a a novel that seemed exuberant at the time. I don't know what happened to that. I, I, I don't think it'll see the light of day if I ever find it. <laughs> but you have more recent ones, though. I have more recent ones. The recent ones, they are getting told. I need to write things for a while and let them sit, and then I go back to them and I see, I'm more able to see what's working and what's not. If you work on prose day after day, it can start to, you know, your eyes start to glaze over and you can't tell what's working. So you need to step away and then, and then go back. So I always have a couple of different things I'm working on to get a little distance. Is, is that kind of the reason that something like Middlesex changes from multiple viewpoints to one? Well, when I was writing Middlesex, I just didn't know how to tell the story. It's such a large story. So I had two 150-page drafts of the book, one in the version that finally was published, told by a first-person narrator endowed with a certain measure of third-person omniscience, and the other one was the, the the many characters novel, many points of view. And both of them had things I liked about them, and I, I gave them to my editor and some friends, and I said, which one which one of these is better? They were, they were schizophrenic in a way. They were about the same story, but they were very different in, in tone and, and manner. And my editor, Jonathan Glossy, said, I like both of them, but this one, I know what this one is, and he means the one that became Middlesex. The other one, I don't know. It could be great, but I don't know what it is. And so I made the decision to, to go in, in one direction. Were you able to recapture parts of the... Parts of it. Parts of it I was able to, to put back in, and the Dr. Luce sections, um, and, and some of those come directly from the other manuscript. I pilfered as much as I could, but mo most of it had to, had to go away. Did you have a similar situation with Marriage Plot then, or...? Not so much, except that I did abandon part of the story when I when I followed Madeline, and some of that material is not going to be in my my next novel. But it's the same the same world, and it's it's um it's fueling it. It's like a compost heap of what I'm what I'm working on now. Though I don't think there will be any page for page um, um, replication of that of that manuscript into the what I'm working on now. But some of the similar ideas and situations could find yeah. It's their the way same. In. It's the same the same world. The same time. Detroit in the 70s. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>